being reasonable. Now heard on WHUPLP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough, and WPVM Asheville. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we first meet with Dr. Rosemary Hyde. Dr. Hyde, who has a doctorate in psycholinguistics and who is also an associate minister, discusses her belief in the perennial philosophy as well as non-physical avenues for acquiring knowledge. Next, we have a moving conversation with Christopher, who paid a notable price for his Christian disbelief. But first up, Dr. and Reverend Rosemary Hyde. What I've come to believe over a lifetime, with many components, is generally is often referred to as metaphysics or as um, as Aldous Huxley called it, the perennial philosophy. And that just says that it's the the collection of ideas about who we are together and separately and where we live in terms of the planet and how the world works. So you wish to discuss the perennial uh, philosophy as uh, a fundamental belief of yours. On a scale from one to seven, how confident are you that this belief is true? Seven. And on a scale from one to seven, how important is it for you in believing in things that are true? Oh, that's crucial. Seven? Yeah. Okay. How do you know it's true? Well, a bunch of ways. I know that no matter where writers and spiritual teachers are, where they've come from, if they are, if they themselves are talking about what they perceive, what they are aware of in their lives that they know is beyond them, bigger than them, it's all the same all over the world. To me, the universality of um, beliefs, of ideas in situations where people have not known each other, haven't read each other, haven't talked to each other, but where the same sets of beliefs arise every place, that's proof that there is something bigger than all of us and that it has a lot in common with itself, every place that it shows up. Is it possible 
for a large number of people to perceive things in a similar way, yet there could still be a misperception of what they're perceiving. Absolutely. And it happens often. The One of the basic elements of this perennial philosophy or ancient wisdom, which you may also call it, um, is that it springs from the space within us, from our, our detached from the human, from the everyday physical reality, our sense of what's real. Like, for instance, most people that I know, and I know there are people who don't feel this way, but most people that I know here, for instance, love being out with trees. Mm -hmm. What is that? You know, what do we have in common with a tree? Nothing that, that we are really aware of in everyday life, but there's some connection there. And it's fairly universal. Mm -hmm. If you look at every single world religion, whether it's a native shamanism okay. or a very sophisticated, literate tradition, they all share the same idea that okay. we need to love everybody. That's kind of the foundation of it. And that's oneness. That's, you know, that's... That's the supernatural part. It's the part that's not, that is not perceptible to our physical senses, but it is perceptible to uh, our intuitive senses, our sense of right and wrong, our sense of who we are, our authenticity. How are our physical senses different from our intuitive senses? Well, the physical senses are the, the ones that you know, like our eyes and our ears and our sense of feeling and our sense of uh, balance, our sense of motion. Those are all physical senses. Um, an intuitive sense would be our gut feeling that something's not right here or that that was bad what I did. Physical senses and intuitive senses, do one, some of those senses use the brain and some of the senses not use the brain? The physical brain. What I'm trying to understand is that you're saying that there's the physical senses and... Sight, hearing, touch, um, taste, smell. And presumably those senses are wired into our brain, but the sense of intuition is not wired into our brain, it's wired somewhere else? Well, it's wired into the... It becomes a physical knowing, but it doesn't use any of those senses. What does it use? What does it use? It uses our sense of connection. And with, how does that... With the universe, with what's bigger than us. That's the supernatural. How does that connect to our brain? That's not a question I've thought about. How is, you know, it's, it's a knowing, so it's somehow it's in, in our brain. It's in our mind which is our faculty of creating and thinking and knowing. It's not physically wired into that, but that's where we perceive it. Is our mind different than our brain? I, uh, yes. How so? Well, what I'm, mind is awareness, consciousness, knowing. 
And where does that occur? Where does that occur? It occurs in us and around us. We share it. How do we know that it exists? We experience it. We can, we can talk about it. We can communicate about it. Other people share it with us. I mean, it's truly a miracle that anybody manages to communicate anything to anybody because when we're talking about anything in the physical world, it's only our eyes and our sense of touch and our taste and our smell. And that's just our individual physical being. And when I, for instance, say the word shoe, I would bet you anything a different picture comes into your mind than was in my mind. So to use your example, when you use the word shoe, I could say that my brain registers a different image than your brain, but you are saying that the mind is different. And I'm trying to understand how okay, so cognition occurs in the okay, mind. Okay, so yeah, in the mind, we do, I wager, have a very similar concept or idea. If we didn't have a brain, would there still be minds? That's a great question. <laughs> yes. How? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Because you're making a distinction between minds and brains yes. and that certain physical processing occurs in brains while certain supernatural processing occurs in minds. Yes. And I'm trying to understand how we know that. Okay. So the idea or the, the thought, the, the concept is one aspect of awareness what we're talking about is consciousness, okay. awareness, uh -huh. um, which is bigger than us. And I get that. I can see how the brain could just be substituted. Why do we need to add that extra level? So it's, so it's kind of the same question as in medicine we talk about, you know, this medication has these molecules and it does this physical effect. Okay. That's a very mechanistic perspective on how things work. So in holistic awareness, we're aware not only of the physical, but we're aware of the feelings as part of the physical. We're aware of... But how are feelings not physical? They are physical. And they're also, as you know, they, that's also feelings both generate or re, are the response to uh, hormones and neurotransmitters and, you know, physical. It's all physiological. But it goes beyond that. You know, it, it goes beyond that to, for instance, make us determined that I got to do something about that. I just can't stand here and let that happen. But why isn't emotions like determination just a function of the brain? Because they engage the body and they engage, they, they give you the wherewithal to engage other people 
It's, it, all, it all comes back to that connection with others. But doesn't just the brain itself enable me to connect with other people? I hear your voice, I, I see your body language, and that is all coming up through my senses into my neural pathways mm-hmm. and is generating my response to you. I'm trying to understand how we need that extra step, what we're gaining from that. Can't we just explain it just with our brains communicating? No. <laughs> what am I missing? The non-physical. Which is what? Which is gut-level knowing, which is intuition, which is empathy, which is compassion. Those are not emotions. They're ways of knowing. So empathy, compassion, those senses or emotions or whatever we're talking, those do not occur in the brain. Right. They come, they come from what we know. And yeah, what we know involves the brain, but sometimes it doesn't. But then how does the physical interact with the non-physical? In other words, we have um, faculties, we have awareness, which is also not physical. We have a lot of physical, and our knowing goes beyond the physical. That just is. What is your best evidence for that? Your best evidence for that is your, when you do connect on that level, you have a gut-level feeling about someone else, that you really like them, or you don't. That's not physical. It's physical in terms of sexual attraction. That is physical. But in terms of, is this person somebody that I can really be a friend with over a long period of time? That's not physical. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Rosemary Hyde as she discusses her belief in the perennial philosophy, as well as non-physical avenues for acquiring knowledge, after this short break. You are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. If you have a belief that you wish to discuss, connect with us through beingreasonableshow.com.
better than something Something's better than nothing Cause nothing is what something used to be Guess it's better than something Something's better than nothing Cause nothing is what something used to be Guess it's better than something Something's better than nothing Something is what something is to be Better than something Something's better than nothing thought experiment that if I could somehow show you that emotions like gut feelings, intuition, empathy, those occur in the brain in the sense that if I could show you a person in an fMRI scanner and how a person talks about certain emotions and those emotions light, light up certain areas of the brain and I can show you that this area of the brain is responsible for these kinds of emotions or something along those lines, mm-hmm. would that change your mind any? I don't know. I mean, I I certainly would believe that any um, that every feeling and every thought that we have, because we're physical beings as well as spiritual beings, you know, while we're in the body, involves the body. But there's more to it than that. What's so, what's so wrong with the non-physical? Well, and hopefully I'm not saying there's something wrong with the non-physical. I think what I'm saying is, well, personally, I try to believe in as many true things as possible. Mm-hmm. And I try to believe in as least many false things. And if it is true, I want to have evidence for it. If it's something that can't be seen or touched I'm going to require quite a bit of evidence for it because it's a spectacular claim. Yes, it is. And spectacular claims would appear to require 
spectacular level of evidence. Yeah, but maybe not the same kind of evidence. So in um, fieldwork, anthropological fieldwork, mm-hmm. the, um, the concept of a universal is a considered a reliable I understand. indicator that there is truth. In other words, if every human community since forever has shared certain beliefs mm-hmm. that are not physically evident, okay. that is considered evidence. What if every or almost every community from the dawn of time up until, let's say, recently, what if all these communities believed that the sun circled around the earth? Mm-hmm. Would that say anything about the truth value of that? Well, actually, yeah, fairly recently, but the awareness that that's not true goes back into the Renaissance, I believe. And Can't we all believe in something that's not true? Oh, absolutely. We all believe in a ton of stuff that's not true. Um, that, um, coming back to the, the sun thing, that isn't a totally valid example because people have observed hundreds of years ago that, hey, maybe that's not what's going on. I understand, but up until Copernicus' time, I don't know of a single culture that believed that the earth circled around the sun. And that appeared, if there's any universal that could be said, that's a universal. Mm-hmm. Just because something is universal and that we all believe it, does that make it true? You know, it's, it's really interesting. You really have a very hard time believing that there is a non-physical. So what do you do? I'm just curious. What do you do with wonder? with awe, with mystery. I think that is the beauty of this world. And I have incredible awe about this universe and the physical universe. And I don't think I have to go to anywhere non-physical to experience awe. I think it's amazing. It's incredible. What evidence do you have of where awe sits in your body? I think we can come up with evidence where, where awe sits in the body. I think we, there's uh, neurocognitive evidence. There's certain parts of the brain that have certain relationships with behavior. I think I'm on good footing to say that awe occurs in the brain. I don't think we're ever going to know all the evidence. And some of it's not going to be physical, I'm sure. Because you say, I don't know something, is that a reason to believe that this other thing is true? Right? I know that I have experienced knowing that didn't come to me through physical means. I know that I have experienced congruence that was not based on physical presence in the same space and time. And I know that the laws of the non-physical 
universe are not the same laws as govern everyday life, at least in regard to how beings relate to each other. So you're saying that there are laws to a non-physical universe? Yes. Well, What is an important law of a non-physical universe? That every, every phenomenon has a cause. How could we test whether that law is true? Just by experience. And by, you know, it's by many experiences. Not just one person's experience. I think during this conversation, I was more passionate, and I try to be dispassionate about these conversations, and I do apologize for that. And I think we're both coming from a really good place. And I would imagine you agree we live in, to say the least, interesting times. Oh, yeah. We have some wildly different beliefs that seem to be hinged on wildly different sets of facts. Mm -hmm. Should we believe in things that we don't have good evidence for? And is that getting us in trouble? That we don't have certain kinds of evidence for. Well, that's part of our discussion. (laughs) There are many kinds of evidence that are credible. I think evidence is evidence. And I know in my own academic life, that especially as a psycholinguist, mm-hmm. that the kinds of physical evidence that is that are demonstrated by like the double blind study, mm-hmm. that's one kind of evidence. I think I really I really believe and I've seen and I know that there are scientists in fields, many fields, that believe that what they call qualitative information, which is what I've been talking about. Well, most people don't have conversations like these. I know, (laughs) but I enjoy them. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I greatly enjoyed this. I really, truly did. It's about the numinous area where what we can observe physically on some level and what we can't really observe physically, where they come in contact. And so, and people are scared and they don't want to be wrong. And somebody's always going to think you're wrong. We have a moving conversation with Christopher who paid a notable price for his Christian disbeliefs, coming up after this short break. I'd rather bear 
This is an assumption. I don't have direct evidence for this, but 99% of the people in your situation who were brought up religious don't end up here, right? I would imagine most people end up in the belief structure that they were raised in, provided that their peer group doesn't change too much. Is, Is that what happened to you? I've lived in North Carolina my whole life, um, and religion was never a big part. I think that's part of it. We didn't talk about religion at home, so I probably didn't think that it was as important as my parents wish it had been. So if if it's not part of your—I mean, we went to church on Sundays. We went to youth group on Wednesdays, but it wasn't—I didn't go around thinking about God every day, probably, and so then it was easier to leave behind— there wasn't a moment that I left it behind. It just, I don't remember the last time I believed, but I don't, there wasn't a aha moment the way with Santa, I think I went down and asked my mom, like, there's no way he goes to every house in a day. That logistically, that doesn't make sense. That that was sort of an aha moment with Santa, but I don't have that with religion. Yeah. So this is something you weren't, entirely wed to possibly in the beginning, and it just sort of you moved more away from over time as well. It certainly happened before college, so I don't think that it was, 
a professor or a book or a movie or a conversation I had. Um, I remember before I got my Eagle Scout, my parents, this is something they've told me since then. My parents were talking about, would there be a problem because I didn't believe in getting my Eagle Scout since the Boy Scouts actually require belief in a higher power. And so clearly I didn't believe when I was 15 or 16, but again, like I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember when it happened. So I, I grew out of it. I grew away, away from it. I imagine because it didn't make sense. Would there be a situation or could something happen where you would change that view? Yeah. Um, I can't think of a, a good example of what particular evidence I would have to have to think that a high power was real, much less the particular higher power referenced in Christianity. But I will say that um, I'm a student of ancient Mediterranean history, mm-hmm. and as someone who's read through the Roman Empire and how the early Christian church formed, and who is by no means an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm by no means a scholar in this regard, but the knowledge set that I have, I really don't see how Christianity could be true. I'm much more open to the fact that there could be a creator than that creator is Yahweh who sent his son Jesus here. I really don't see any evidence of that based on my experience with things. If someone could show you evidence in that regard, would you change your mind? Would you think about... I would like to think so. I think that anyone who answers that question definitively isn't thinking. Um, It's easy to say, of course I would, but that hasn't happened, so who knows? I mean, I would like to think that I would if there were lost texts, for instance, that that were found. That would be one um, help. Uh, You know, like first-hand gospels, gospels that were written by people that that knew Jesus as opposed to what we have. Um, So I'd like to think that that would help me reconsider. And I think I'd also rely on scholars in that field. So this information gets discovered and people who are PhDs in the area, Mm -hmm. I, I imagine would inform my opinion. What if someone said, hey, Christopher, I think what your problem is is that the reason why you don't believe in Jesus is that you're not opening your eyes to Jesus. You're not, he's there if you seek him and you can see miracles and see evidence for him if you just open your eyes to that fact. I would say, take Jesus out of that sentence and put Apollo or Krishna or any other deity in that sentence and... I would imagine that my interlocutor would not accept that. So if you can say, why aren't these miracles evidence of Apollo, then on what basis do they make the claim that th- these miracles would be evidence of Jesus? So, And then what if that person then said to you, okay, well, maybe not Jesus, but a God, a, a deity, just in general, maybe we're all praying to the same God, and a God working in your life as opposed to no God working in your life? I could certainly be a deist before a theist. I could certainly imagine a prime mover before I could imagine uh, a personal God who cares what our behaviors are. But then 
because we don't know. So without evidence for it, why fall back on that claim rather than saying, I don't know. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know a great many things. One of the things I don't know is if there's a prime mover creator, but I don't know. But other things that I don't know, I don't suppose I claim. Well, I don't know a unicorns existed. So let's say unicorns probably existed. Why? And then if someone asks Christopher, there might not be strong, tangible evidence that there's a deity or a god or somebody or something out there. But wouldn't you agree that there must be something because we're here? There must be a reason? Well, if we weren't here, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. So things happen to work out that we could have this conversation, but most of the universe is hostile to us. So in most cases, in our observable universe, to my understanding, not being versed in astrophysics at all, but it seems like life didn't work out in a great many places and it happened to work out here. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that being here is evidence of a higher power doing that. Just statistically, that's weird. Like it only happened in, in this tiny place Not to mention the fact that if you want to use that, you know, explanation of, well, we're here, so somebody had to have put us here. Well, then you're left with, well, who put that person here? And you just sort of have this cause-effect loop that you can't solve. I I don't understand how a supernatural explanation solves the problem of a lack of an explanation. If this wasn't true, if you did not believe in this, would your life be different? Well, I think that a not holding or holding a great many beliefs would change how I... I mean, beliefs have consequences. Mm-hmm. So, and the word believe is such, a, such an interesting one, too. So, sure. I, I work my life under the assumption that gravity is a thing. So, like, I predict that if I drop something, that that, that will happen. So I, I conduct myself forward in that way. More specifically with my lack of theism, the fact that this is the only life I think there is means that it's incredibly precious to me. I know that religious believers also feel this way and that their belief that God made them all of us special um, means that life can be meaningful for them. So in no way do I think that my atheism makes life special, but the fact that this is all there is and that I was gone, I, I didn't exist for billions of years and I won't exist presumably for billions of years. I'm here for this short, tiny second, and all I have is to bring happiness to myself and those around me. Um, I don't think that life has a purpose. I think that it's up to each one of us to make our own short existence purposeful for us and those around us. And and that's all we have. And yeah, if I didn't, if I didn't think this, I mean, I would imagine that I would still enjoy life, but I do think about it a lot that 
that this is all there is. And I don't think I'll see my loved ones again in an afterlife. And sometimes that's crushing. Uh, it's only crushing because currently alive though, because once I'm dead, it won't bother me. But yeah, the fact, I mean, funerals are that much harder. I feel for me because all I have now are memories and I will never see that person again. Do these ideas ever come up in your personal life or does it cause any kind of friction or is this something that just, you don't have that kind of issue with the people you are around? I sometimes bring it up at work with some of my closer colleagues, not, not so much administration, certainly not with my students, though that's for a different reason. It's none of my students' business, what I think, and I don't want what I think to color what happens in the classroom. I don't want the learning in the classroom to be tainted by that. In my personal life, with friends, I have no problem being myself as was. I mean, I, I'm on the board of a local chapter of the Freedom From Religion Foundation um, called the Triangle Free Thought Society. So we are quite open with one another, but in our in-group where there's no danger. Uh, it, it has caused some friction with my family, to be sure. My father is the son of a preacher and has not reacted well to the news that I don't believe. Why? So my grandfather, the preacher, his, his last words to my father before he died were, make sure that your children believe or make sure that your children go to church. So my father has this intense guilt uh, that I don't believe. He knows I don't believe because he asked me on Christmas Day one year, and you can't pause and then say yes to that question. <laughs> Do you believe? Right. After that pause, there's... So, I was truthful with him, and he told me to get out. We were at his house. And I said, hmm. forever? He's like, I don't want to talk to you. And I said, forever? I said, I don't want to talk to you right now. Now, that situation was resolved by my mother apologizing and he apologized and we just don't talk about it. You know, the best way to solve problems is to ignore them and not talk about them. Of course, that's right. clearly the best way to move forward. And, um, a few years later, again, on Christmas Eve, because we went to church with them because they were going to church and we were at their house and that's what you do at church with them. My father stepped out of the service and he had been in the hospital recently with a heart issue. So after 10 minutes, I went out to make sure he was okay. And he said to me, uh, your atheism is making it hard for me to be alive. Hmm. Which is probably one of the worst things anyone's ever said to me. Hmm. Now, we got home and he apologized and he said, I didn't quite hear him right. And that's certainly possible. It could be possible that I am misremembering what he said. Um, uh, since then, he's gotten a heart transplant. And he has a better outlook on life, and he and I don't talk about it. But it's especially, like, I don't know how to tread with him these days. I don't know how to talk about things. And that's not how you, how you solve problems. So this has been, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's been a problem for me. But I also know that people are kicked out of their houses for this. So I try to put into perspective 
my familial hardship with this is relatively low. I didn't know this is where we were heading, and it's very poignant. My question would be, and you might not be able to answer this, it might be a question for your father, where truly is this coming from? Is it coming from a sense of, if I don't do this, a loved one will experience an eternity of suffering? Is it coming from a misunderstanding of what it is you do think? I'm just trying to understand the source of the strife. Well, if you believe the Christian dogma, that's really the only one I can speak to. Generally, if you don't believe, you go to hell. I mean, I know that there's a lot of denominations, but I'm just going to go ahead and use that as the baseline. That's what Christians think, even though I know that there's a lot more nuance there. If that's true, there's nothing more important than, you know, your child's eternal soul. So I certainly understand I see. Um, so in how his that mind, could the stakes be, are very high. Yeah, that for him, the, the stakes are, are quite high, and he's become more religious as I've moved out of the house, which was surprising to me that, you know, when we were growing up, my parents were Christian. I would never have any doubt of that, but we didn't talk about religion at home. So now the fact that they attend church weekly, we did not growing up. The fact that my father donates to the church and is on one of their committees. I don't know exactly what the committee does, but he's, he's taken an active involvement in this uh, church and he reads his Bible Maybe not nightly, but but certainly often. He's become much more religious. I, If I would speak for him, I would imagine it's because he's had heart problems for decades. And he's also getting older, so perhaps the thought of his own mortality is, is driving this. But yeah, I mean, the stakes are, are fairly high for him. I would, I mean, again, I'm speaking for him, so this is all assumption. But... I can understand why this is a big deal for him. It's just hard for someone in my position to... The solution has to be that for his comfort, I don't talk about it. And... I mean, I'm not really happy with that outcome, but on the other hand, a relationship with my father is perhaps more important than mm-hmm. than anything else. Do you fear death? Yes, because I'm currently alive. I fear dying. I think that would be more accurate. It's, I don't really, I mean, emotionally, I fear being dead because I'm currently not, and I would like to stay that way. But logically, I don't fear being dead. I don't fear not, how could you fear not existing? You don't exist in order, so it's only angst in the present because I'm alive. The fact that I'm younger means that I don't have to think about it too often because (laughs) psychology and evolution has made us so much present tense creatures that it's hard to think of decades into the future if we're talking, you know, natural lifespan. Uh, But yeah, emotionally, I worry about dying, how painful it could be, especially if it's, Ongoing, the the heart disease that my dad has is likely genetic, and I could have it too. Mm -hmm. And 
I haven't gotten tested for several reasons. One, if I found out that it that I had what he has, there would be no current treatment. Two, that could endanger life insurance or pre-existing condition medical because we don't have universal health care in this country. And three, it could endanger my son's. It could give him a pre-existing condition. So I could have what he has, but I try not to think about it. What if you say to yourself, the truth, big T, I'm going to tell myself that doesn't matter and I'm just going to choose a belief. But that's all that matters, right? I mean, like, I couldn't imagine not wanting to go through life. I want to believe as many true things as possible, and I couldn't imagine not conducting myself in that manner. Wanting to know the truth makes me less likely to eat things that are poison. I know things are poison, I won't eat them. Mm -hmm. It makes me, I mean, it, it keeps me safe. Like, mm -hmm. believing things that are true means that I'm more likely to act rationally. And acting rationally keeps me safe. It keeps me alive. It keeps the people around me safe and alive. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon. And you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week. You can't fake the funk.
placed a ring on your finger Went back to my place Fell asleep to the wedding singer Early on we felt comfort Excitement and laughter A much better version of the rom-com ever after Insensitive to cultures not my own I don't love anyone except for, of course, Canadians Our love is like Drew Barrymore Charming in 94, but not so much anymore Over the next few years, we've taken paths of least resistance Like Aaron and Garrett in going the distance Though we still watch movies Our flame has demised Like when Henry died of a heart attack in Home Pride While you say I'm insensitive to cultures not my own I don't love anyone except for, of course, Canadians Our love is like Drew Barrymore Charming in 94, but not so much anymore Our love is like Drew
W-H-U-P-L-P 